0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, we're back into the Ten Commandments. We're going to begin with question 267, which leaves us roughly 100 questions to finish uh, within... You know, well, we'll see. We'll see how far it, and how long it goes. Um, next week, so you know, um, Hans Borsma will be taking over this catechesis class, and uh, he'll be speaking a bit on the beatific vision. If you don't know who Hans Borsma is, he's one of the really kind of great theologians alive today, um, and a friend of the parish, and a friend of a number of people here, and. Um, uh, his most recent work has been on the beatific vision, which is the vision of God in uh, in the eternal realm of heaven, and um, he's really uh, just got so much good to say, and I think you'll benefit a great deal from it. Um, the other thing I want to update you on is that uh, Bishop Biker, because of his cancer treatments at MD Anderson, will not be able to be here on uh, April 7th for confirmations, but will be sending... Uh, one of the assisting bishops, Bishop Ackerman, uh, who was here with us for the consecration of this building uh, back in April, to come back here uh, to do that. Um, so you know, confirmations are still on. <laughs> so if you want to be confirmed, let either me know or Christy. Probably more appropriately, because Christy will remember um, and <laughs> Christy will write it down. <laughs> She's very organized, and uh, and uh, and that'll be uh, we can we can get you ready for that. Um, Many people have asked, like, you know, what, why should I be confirmed? And and uh, and my, the best answer I can give that give to you to that is that's something you need to pray about. It's something you need to consider. And uh, at the end of that time, if, if you want to be confirmed, then you should be. Um, but but uh, consider it something that you should pray about and consider. Um, the reason to be confirmed would simply be that you want to uh, know the increase of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you you'd like to be. Uh, and one of the things that is an accessory to that is that you're all in basically here at Christ Church, and so uh, uh, usually what happens is if people sign on to be confirmed. I'm thinking in my mind, like, what are we going to have them do, <laughs> and, uh, and how are we going to put them to work? And so that's something that you should you should consider as well. Um, but let's 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 jump into these commandments. Um, you'll remember that uh, the lead up to the Ten Commandments is this question of how are the Ten Commandments given in Scripture. Anybody remember? Stone. Well, they're given in stone, but the first way they're given is how? Spoken. They're spoken, actually. It's later that they're written on tablets of stone. Uh, this all happens in Exodus 20. Um, and we've been reading this in the Daily Office, actually, for the last week, uh, all these accounts in Exodus. Um, and uh, they're really, um, there's, there's a great deal more to them than, than, than you think. And you hear them again, you think, Oh my goodness! There's just so much good here. Um, the The commandments are not uh, merely just sort of God speaking His law down to the people. What's actually happening is that these are these are covenant demands that are placed on the people, um, if they are to live um, as as participants in um, in God's plan for this land, for this people. Um, so the the commandments are given. Uh, to the people audibly and if you remember the story god god tells moses uh, don't don't let anyone touch this mountain right no one not even cattle can touch the land can touch this mountain because what happens if they do well they'll die so this is this holy mountain that's given and he invites moses up onto the mountain and later he invites aaron onto the mountain and later he invites the elders of the people up on the mountain But the the commandments are given audibly to the whole people. And at the end of the commandments, the people ask, they say say to Moses, you know, ask God not to speak to us anymore because if he keeps speaking to us, we're going to drop dead. (laughs) Um, And what good will that be? (laughs) And so there's there's uh, there's this sense, and this is really important that you get this, that the commandments are not just sort of like, you need to do this and you need to do that. There's a holy exchange going on here between between um, the God who is the, the king of the people and the people um, in the ancient world I talked about this last week you know you you would not have um, uh, a kind of democratically elected Congress coming together in, outside of Athens and and writing a bunch of laws um, in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East at that point. Uh, Kings wrote laws for their people as a gift to the people, um, and if you read some of these ancient laws, it, it, it actually gives people certain rights. Um, so immediately after the Ten Commandments, and we read this last week, you get this this whole run of laws about, um, you know, it's it's things that seem very ancient, but it, but it's very important. You know, if you're if you're a slave, and you uh, you marry one of the you marry someone else within the household, you know how. How can, how can you um, redeem the lives of your wife and children from, out, from the house? Is that possible? How can you stay? Um, all of these things come together. Um, if you uh, suffer the loss of property, how is it restored to you? Um, so all this comes together. But, but in this first part of the commandments, and we're going to talk about this, the law doesn't revolve around property. It doesn't revolve around these kind of moral duties, what it revolves around is God himself. Um, and this reminds us that the law is about this exchange between God and man. Um, which, in a sense, and this is really important, prefigures this new covenant. Because here's what happens. How, how well do the people keep the law? Like, it's really bad, right? Read read through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, all these things, you'll, you'll, you'll see immediately. This is a disaster, and it's a disaster from the start. Um, when the people come into the land, um, they, they are not great with keeping the law um, and it's only far later that they even that they even think about it much uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild Jerusalem, that, that the law is kept in the way that uh, that, uh, that it's commanded here. Okay, so what is the first commandment? The first commandment is... I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean to have no other gods? It means that there should be nothing in my life more important than God and obeying His will. I should love, revere, trust and worship Him only. Um, no other gods before me uh, uh, is, is a way of saying, "No, no other God can take priority. Um, it's kind of an odd thing, but in the Old Testament, the 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 existence of other gods is not highly is not hotly contested. Um, it's, it's assumed there are other gods of the lands, but they are to be given no credence by the people. Um, they are to worship God alone, this God uh, who has revealed Himself to His people, um, and and that is it. Um, and uh, the, the basis for this in the Old Testament is that God is, this, this God is a jealous God. doesn't mean he's jealous like a 14-year-old gets jealous or like a, like a high school girlfriend gets jealous. Not, that's not it. <laughs> the jealousy is about when we give worship to other things or other gods, um, we are giving what it rightfully belongs to God to something else or someone else. Um, and and it's his right to be worshiped. Um, All these things belong to him. Um, And so uh, nothing can be more important, um, and nothing can can take that place, Um, and we should love, revere, trust, and worship him only. Can you worship God perfectly? No, only our Lord Jesus Christ worshiped God perfectly. He leads the church today to seek to do the same. Um, In Scripture is this understanding very strongly that that no one can live this perfect life of obedience to God. In many ways, the law is set up to show us that. Um, This is one of the things that that consistently comes back is the law is good, yes. I mean, Paul says the law is good, (laughs) but at the same time, what does it do? It really does very much... It has a function of condemning us. Um, but listen to this. Jesus Christ worshiped God perfectly. He keeps this law perfectly, and he leads the church to do the same. Um, this is a great gift of grace that, uh, that when we enter into the church's worship, um, we don't have to worry. <laughs> am, I, am I worshiping some other God here? <laughs> I mean, think about this. For much of the temple history in in Judaism, uh, was 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 the God of Israel the only one worshipped in that temple? Yeah, not at all. Um, they're setting up shrines to foreign gods in the temple. It's a constant problem, um, and the and the good kings are always coming in and, and cleaning house, and they're taking out all of the uh, all the imagery of the the foreign gods. Um, go ahead. Ah, well. Um, going back just a bit, if we can go to the go to this um, to question two fifty six, um, the law does not only exist to condemn us; it also shows us um, our character. So God's holy law is a light to show me His character. It shows us who God is. Um, it shows me myself, which has great value, actually. Um, Part of the problem with being sinners is we're we're perpetually dishonest. We're dishonest about ourselves. Do you agree with that? Um, we kind of we kind of like to we like to candy coat things. <laughs> we like to say, well, surely it's not that bad, you know. Certainly, uh, certainly, I'm not as, I'm not that bad. Um, and yet, um, you show someone the Ten Commandments, and it's it's to say, yikes, um, I, I fall short of that immediately out of the gate. Um, so it's, it's, uh, that's, that's important. But also, there's this understanding in Scripture that, the, and this, this goes straight back to Paul in Galatians, the law serves as a, as a schoolmaster or a tutor uh, to lead us to Christ. Um, well, what does a schoolmaster do or a tutor do? Yeah, there's correction for sure. It's more in that ancient sense, though. really leads you to the truth. Um, and it's only and this is really important for the Christian we come to an understanding that, that we are that we are um, not up to the task in and of ourselves and that's, that''s that's the basis of the gospel right is I can't do this I can't do this it's impossible I can't do it of my own accord um, so I need help um, and and to whom do we turn for help but one who has fulfilled the law, and not only that, but showers grace upon his people to fulfill the law—that's where the law fits in. Um, and that's actually why. So on Sundays now in Lent, we we begin we begin the liturgy by reciting the Ten Commandments. Do we do this to kind of wag a finger, wag a moral finger at everyone and say, "You all are failing. You all are sinners. You need to try to do better"? No, it's not that. It's before we enter into the to the Eucharist, which is um, the high point of the church's life where the, the grace of Jesus sh- is showered upon his church to remember that we come as sinners, as those in need of his grace, to this altar. Um, and that, that serves to put us in the right frame of mind. Do you see how that functions? Uh, not as presumptuous, right? This is, this is part of the problem. Um, presumption has no place in Christian worship. The moment we say, I deserve to be here, and and you know no matter what, um, I'll show up and God will show up because this is a sort of magic exchange. Um, we we really need to come to worship um, in fear and trembling, with a with a sense that um, that. With a sense that God is God is the object of this whole thing, um, and that's that's really when we get to the heart of Christian worship, right? I mean, this is part of the problem: is that um, t- in today's world, so many have said, you know, we've tailored worship to the to the whims and to the cares of 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 of, um, of people to the point where. Um, it's become rather um, well. I Me mean, worship has become a, a kind of self-serving thing, you know. I go to get this kind of feeling. I go to get this kind of um, boost. Um, and uh, and Christian worship is, is about is about entering into the presence of God and serving Him, um, and letting that be the reward in itself. Um, so. Let's move on. Why are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted because my sinful heart is still drawn to false gods and their appeal for my allegiance. Um, false gods appeal, you note this, they always appeal to the heart. <laughs> um, why? Because the intellect, um, uh, the intellect doesn't quite latch on in the way that the heart does. Do you agree? Like, I mean, when you meet the love of your life, do you sort of sit there and tally up the admirable qualities in that person on on paper and say? you know, this just looks like such a great fit. I, I, I think I'm in love on paper. And, and that's laughable, isn't it? Because, because what, what God wants and what, 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 we, what we know, I think, intuitively is that, um, that it's the heart that has to be won over. I mean that's why that's why any man worth his salt knows that knows how to woo, right? He knows how to do this. This is important. It's an important skill that you that you have to gain, um, and it, sadly, many many are losing hold of this. But, but it's an important um, part of our of our life because we know that um, that if we ever want if we ever want someone to to return that love and that affection, um, we have to work seduction. This is really important. Um, and God knows this too. Um, if he ever wants us to will to love him, he's got to seduce us. Um, and so uh, the great spiritual writers write about how this, this seduction is worked. Um, it's not about sort of appealing to the mind and saying, well, you know, there are, there are five proofs for the existence of God, and uh, hopefully one of them will be, will be uh, helpful to you, and then you'll just sort of latch on, and that'll be it. Um, no. And if God knows this, then, then um, false gods will tempt the sinful heart away. Um, and it's always interesting in Scripture that, uh, that when God's people are tempted by other gods, it's always this tempting of the heart that runs after them. You think about uh, Solomon, King Solomon had all of these foreign wives, um, and, and the problem with foreign wives in the in the scriptures is that they always tempt the king or tempt men away from the god of their of their nation and of their childhood um, because these are these are seductive gods, I mean in many ways literally seductive. right? The idea is these are fertility goddesses, and you know they 're pretty uh, pretty attractive. I'll just put it that way. There are some younger, younger ears in the room. They're pretty attractive. And, and you know, you, you kind of get to do some neat things if you go into the temple and, and, uh, because they're seductive. Um, but, but not in the way that, that the God of all uh, uh, seeks, seeks out the heart. But they do, draw, they do draw you away by seeking your allegiance. How are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted to trust in myself, possessions, relationships, and success, believing that they will give me happiness, security, and meaning. I am also tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims, and to reject God's call to worship him alone. I find that as I get older and older, um, you know, the idols in my life stop being things like you know, if I could only have this car, then I'd be set and happy. If I could only have this house, I'd be set and happy. Uh, because you know that those things fail you. You learn this over time, that, that the car's always going to break down, the house is always going to have a repair bill attached to it, and a tax bill attached to it, and, and it's just never going to satisfy Um, And then you start to think, well, let's get some more sophisticated idols around me. I mean, if the house is going to fail and the car is going to fail, then I need something better than that. And what better than myself? Um, What better than relationships that I have or my own success um, to to latch onto as a God in itself? Um, And as you get older, you find that these fail too. Um, That you're always going to fail yourself. Um, you're never going to be able to be as competent as you want to be. Um, the other thing you find is you can work and work and work and work and work till your fingers bleed, and it'll never be enough. Because there will always be some unforeseen issue that arises. Um, there will always be some um, easily made mistake uh, that people want to—they want to cut you down for. Um, and it's, it's a tough thing. Um, relationships will always fail you because people change. People change. Um, and, and often worse than having your friends disappoint you is being a disappointment to your friends. Um, I remember a friend from college that uh, called me up one day and he was really angry at me. And I said, why are you mad? And he's like, when I moved to this town, I thought you'd be my friend and you weren't. And I got married and had kids, and he hadn't, and and it was tough because I was like, I thought, man, you know, all you had to do was call me, and he, and he, but he wanted this investment, and I, I couldn't give it at the time. Um, it was, it was horribly deflating to me because I thought, you know, I can do all these other things. Why can't I be a friend too? Um, disaster. Um, we think we really do think that. That uh, we can gain happiness and and security. I mean, here's the the other thing, too, is that um, modern society has made a great idol out of security and safety. Um, You know, it seems like every time there's a mass shooting, and these things are awful. I mean, we know they're awful. Um, And we know there's something that can be done about it, too. Um, But at the end of the day, can we ensure our safety? We really can't we really can't um, and the way some politicians talk you'd think they think this is achievable and it's not it just isn't um, and the other thing is at what cost I mean all of these things have costs and at the end of the day sometimes the cost is just too high um, the search for meaning right I mean Part of me just says, I would love it if more people would just search for meaning in general. <laughs> like if we'd have a better society. Like just please search out meaning. I mean, let's let's just be rid of nihilism once and for all. <laughs> but but here's the problem: even that search for meaning can become idolatrous, um, we're, we're, we're trying to place meaning into things where where it might not be that meaningful, um, or we get the wrong meaning out of it. Um, I'm tempted to believe, and this is where this goes, I'm tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. Um, we see early on in Scripture that, uh, that um, God places demands on us uh, in terms of how he is to be worshiped. And this seems very totalitarian. You sit there and say, well, well why isn't the worship I want to give you significant enough for you to accept it? Um, you know, it's it's sort of like being a little kid and, you know, when little kids bring their parents, I drew this for you. And you say, oh, that's beautiful. Could you tell me what that is? <laughs> um, you know, you, you sort of, you sort of, you humor them, right? Um, it's one of the hardest things to read in Scripture where you're, you're reading along and, and uh, Aaron's sons go and they burn improper fire before the Lord in the temple and they, and they get struck dead. And you say, what? <laughs> Why? Why? They didn't deserve that. And then, and then you have to think about it a little while and say, oh, but God told them how he wants to be worshipped and it wasn't that. Um, you might say, well, you know, is God a tyrant? Is, is God bloodthirsty? And I'll, I'll tell you where I've, where I've come on, come in on this. It's that um, we have to have a humility about, especially with the first commandment really does call us to humility. It calls us to fear the Lord. Um, and part of that means that we don't get to say. I mean, that's one of the things I love about being an Anglican priest. I'll say this, I mean, I really don't get to say what worship looks like in this church. I get to say a little bit here and there, but for the most part, it's laid out for me. And I take great comfort in that because I don't have to sit there and kind of reinvent the wheel Sunday after Sunday. But I also get to say, um, I'm under authority too. And so, um, and and. Quite honestly, if I had to be creative about how we worship every Sunday, you'd hate it, I'd hate it, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, it just wouldn't work um, because my words are never up to snuff. Um, I could never write a prayer as good, if, as, good as 97% of what we have. Um, but all that is to say that when we, when we enter into worship the living God, um, we have to set all of our presumption aside. All right, moving on to the second commandment. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, nor make such images for the purposes, oh, I'm sorry, (laughs) or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor make such images for the purposes of worshiping them. Um, This is an oft-debated commandment uh, in the church's history. I'll see if I can break it down for you a little bit. Um, The second commandment specifically uh, forbids um, making a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So uh, this expressly forbids carving images of all manner of animals, all manner of life, trees, things like that. And very often people have just said, don't make any images whatsoever. Err on the side of caution here. <laughs> All images are gonna be bad, and so, and you'll probably worship them because you know we're sinners and that's just how it is, and, and we worship images, and so just don't have any images. The the problem with that is that in scripture God commands the people to make images. Agreed? Right? Like you're going to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. I also want you to make the images of angels, and I want you to set them on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, The temple gets adorned with all kinds of images. So how do we reconcile this is the question. And later on in, 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 uh, in Christian theology, there's another problem which, which emerges, and I'll, I'll lay that out for you a little bit. But the, the problem is making images of the gods, of the nations. Um, most i mean most every god in the ancient world had uh had an image associated with that god or goddess um, and those uh, were often the household gods um, and they would be carved images carved out of wood or or cast in bronze or whatever it may be and they were placed in prominent places in the in the household and worshipped there um and they were also their their images were also placed various places in the temple as well throughout throughout time um, as as the kind of um <laughs> cults of syncretism took hold uh, in, inside the temple. I mean, syncretism is a way of saying, well, just in case God, the God Yahweh is not the real God, then we will have, we'll have hedged our bets sufficiently so that uh, so the other gods will be happy with us too, and won't that be great, and then, and then we'll all be fine, and everything will, everything will blow over. Or if we're facing famine, then we can avoid it by having Baal have equal place, and, and won't that be great? Um, this is the temptation in the ancient world. It's to say well we'll have all these carved images and we'll have them set up we'll have these idols carved um, let's let's go through it a little bit because the Catechism lays this out quite well how did Israel break the first two commandments Israel worshiped the gods of the nations around them neglected God's law and corrupted the worship of the temple thus earning God's punishment we see this throughout the accounts of the kings that uh, idols are set up inside the temple and um, uh, images of Baal, of Molech, of uh, Ashtaroth. I mean, these, you know, if you ever read about the Ashtaroth, does anybody remember this in, in the Old Testament, you know this word? Okay, you know what these are? Oh, no? Okay. They're gigantic phallic symbols that are set up in the temple as as fertility images. They're meant to bring fertility to the land. They're, they're penises. Um, and the reason they're there is to kind of say, uh, you know, let's get these sexy gods together so that they can, you know, do their thing and bring fertility to the earth. Won't that be great? Then we'll have great crops. Um, this is a constant temptation. Um, and these are, these are the gods and goddesses of imminence, yes? They kind of live on the earth and they bring fertility to the earth. But the God, whom, uh, the God of Israel is, is, um, is a God of transcendence. Um, he exercises mastery over creation. He doesn't manipulate. Um, he doesn't. Um, he and he can't be manipulated either. Um, but but the fertility gods—they're always being manipulated, right? We're always trying to get them, get them all ready to go. <laughs> um, so so these these things happen in scripture. Um, you remember my, one of the the old the old gods of uh, I believe uh, the Edomites was was Molech, This uh, this. Uh, uh, kind of bullhorned, cow-headed man <laughs> with, uh, that, that, that liked to have children sacrificed to him. And so that would happen as well. Um, this happened constantly. In fact, um, I've been to Israel lately, and um, they'll point up, if you go on a good tour, they'll point up and say, you know, over there is where all the various cult temples were built. Um, and that's the truth. They were all over the place. Um, they corrupted the worship of the temple and, and they earned God's punishment. And so when we read uh, in the prophets, why is it that these, uh, these punishments have vis- been visited on the people, particularly um, uh, invasions by foreign nations, um, also things like famine, but really more just the invasions by foreign nations. And then ultimately when you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's the exodus, the, the exodus in, or not the exodus, but the, the exile into, Babylon. Why does this happen? Well, it happens because of this foreign worship infecting the temple. Um, and uh, and it's, it's always a problem. And that's in addition to all the other problems of justice, etc. Why do the nations make, sub- make such images? Israel's neighbors worshiped false gods by means of images or idols, believing they could manipulate these imaginary gods to gain favor with them. Okay, so you manipulate the gods, you sort of, um, I mean, God, there, there are just accounts of, and the, the accounts of syncretism go to totally new levels. Um, we They've actually found tablets in uh, in digs where in Hebrew it'll be written, may Yahweh bless you by his Ashtoreth, <laughs> which means may God bless you with his giant phallic symbol. Right, because... This is the twisted understanding that's there in those years. Um, It's this idea, well, if there's good there and there's good over there, then we'll just combine it all together and we'll have some great religious basis for our nation. Um, There's a manipulation going on here. Um, Are all carved images wrong? No. God, who forbids the making of idols and worship of images, commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle, these represented neither God nor false gods, but rather angels, trees, and fruits from the Garden of Eden. Okay, so now we start to see that the temple is to be adorned with images. Um, this, this is a very uh, keenly apprehended idea that, um, that, uh, that these are not idols. So these images in the temple, they're not worshipped as gods, or they shouldn't be worshipped as gods, but they are they're decorative, right? Um, they're meant to be beautiful for this for the sake of the people. Um, I want to say a little bit at this point because it's it's important to break it down. Um, the church has, has struggled with this throughout history. right? There have been periods of of uh, iconoclasm, and there have also been periods in which icons have really been taken to the nth degree. Um, and there's always been a sense in which we have to avoid the pitfalls of, of both. Um, much of iconoclasm uh, is deeply affected by uh, the rise of Islam in the first, in the first iconoclastic controversy. Um, later, uh, in the Protestant Reformation, there's a major concern with um, with uh, the role of icons and statues, et cetera, if you go to England today and you walk around some cathedrals, you'll see where all the old statues used to be, and their heads have been busted off, and the stained glass has been destroyed, and and you you sort of have to think and imagine. And in some places, they'll have um, an, art, an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like in its glory day, which is always to me very very depressing because it's always so so beautiful, um, and and. Uh, Painted up well, and um, these periods, there was a concern with this commandment in particular. It was to say, um, how can we, um, how can we be uh, people who are obedient to God? while, we're, while we have all these images around, um, and while we're tempted to worship them. Um, the, there's an answer that I think is given in the church's history, which is that, um, which may satisfy some, and it may satisfy none. Uh, but it's this that, if we understand that in Christ God has um, given us an image of Himself. I mean, this is this is first, Col- you know, first chapter of Colossians is He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. Um, then we understand that um, it's it's in the visible body of Christ that um, we actually do meet the living God. I mean, consider this for a moment. When people in the, in the Gospels worship Jesus, they worship. His, I mean, they worship His body. Let's be clear about that. They're not just sort of dissociating and say, "Well, you know, I'm not really worshiping His body. I'm just worshiping the invisible God here, and using His His body as a vehicle to do that." No, no, no. the The, the two have become one flesh here. Um. It's it's clear enough to me that um, that. Uh, in the incarnation, images are redeemed in a sense, um, and it's to the point where we can have a church like this with these beautiful stained glass windows, and we can have beautiful images throughout, and we can and we can look and we can say, um, we're not going to worship the stained glass, right? Because we have rules about that. <laughs> I mean, uh, if somebody, uh, I think, I think really and truly, if somebody, if I found somebody like um, worshiping. Stained glass. I'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> That's not what we do here, um, because there's, we're we're careful with that. On the other end, though, we're not going to sort of deface the stained glass, um, because we understand that uh, that that these images are very helpful. Actually, um, these images teach us something. Um, they instruct us. They aid us in worship. Um, and so, uh, so this has always been resisted. I mean. And you can also just know this that um, I think one of the things Matthew Milliner, who's a, uh, a scholar, an art scholar at Wheaton College, says is every every Christian's an iconoclast, and every Christian's a lover of icon. We can't get around it. Um, we 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 constantly want to either burn the icon down or make one ourselves um, because we understand we live in this in this crazy tension, um, and that has to be that has to be balanced. Um, but I will say you can you can tell just from the way the church is laid out, uh, you know where where we wind up on that. It's to say you gotta be you gotta have this balance. Um, okay. Should we move on? All right. Are idols always carved images? No. Relationships, habits, aspirations, and ideologies. Can become idols in my mind if I look to them for salvation from misery, guilt, poverty, loneliness, and despair. We've said a lot about relationships. Certainly, habits can become idols. Um, you know, uh, man, tell tell your kids who have a habit of doing certain things on certain days. Oh, we're not doing that today. They will be like, what? Why? <laughs> and they will they'll kind of lose it for a while uh, because. This, these routines can become so ingrained in us that, that we feel like we're losing, our, um, we're losing ourselves. Um, and, well, what's the reason? The reason is we have lost some of ourselves to that, uh, to that habit. Um, think about aspirations. Um, I have a friend who, who had one goal in life, one single goal in life. And no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much he did, no matter how hard he worked, he always failed. Always. It was, and it was an impossibly high goal, right? It was crazy. Um, and it led him to be deeply depressed through his life. It was a really hard thing. And, and finally, through some, some good counseling, he's been able to bust through it. But he felt like a failure because the thing that he had told everyone in his life, this is, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to be, he failed. He um, um, and what I think I would say gently to him if I was seeing him today, and we've talked about this, is I'd say, well, it's simple, that became an idol for you, and you gave, you gave yourself to this thing which would never satisfy you, even if you were able to accomplish it. Um, and that's something we have to face about ourselves, um, which is that everybody's got an aspiration, right? What if, what if it doesn't happen? Um, will, we, will we wind up in despair? Um, I, I do want to say a little bit about ideologies. Um, we live, of course, in a very um, ideologically polarized uh, society today, um, and very often ideology becomes an idol in itself. Um, and and uh, people who would, uh, who would write off all manner of religious ideas um, give themselves wholly to, to, to ideologies, um, and in a, in a very religious manner. I think we can say. Um, they're religiously devoted to the ideology. Um, and for the Christian, there, there can be no religious devotion to ideology. Um, and I know that often uh, Orthodox Christians are, are derided as ideologues. <laughs> but I would actually say Orthodox Christians are, are far more flexible than the, uh, than the ideological um, spread that we see in society today. Um, there's a there's a kind of generosity that that um, usually accompanies that, um, where we're willing to enter into a kind of um, thoughtful discussion about things, um, and uh, and that in itself can be a marker that there's something wrong with you today. Why are you you know you're 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 willing to have a discussion about it? It's like, yeah, of course. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. I think um, we're we're seeing that come really to a, a really dangerous, uh, dangerous level. And I mean danger in the violent sense. We're, we're getting to the point where um, ideologies can become very, very, very violent um, over time. So um, we, we see that uh, rather strongly. Um, and what do we look to these things for, especially ideology? Well, we look for salvation from misery, guilt, poverty, loneliness, or despair. And we see this today, right? I mean, people don't, what people used to do in the old days, when, when they'd meet, meet up with poverty or misery or any kind of guilt or loneliness um, or the despair uh, that, that we often face, is is they would go to church. It's a crazy idea, right? They would, they would go into a church. It's amazing. Um, even if they weren't particularly religious, they'd still go into a church, and, and they would do this. They'd say, well, you know, maybe I need to think about some of these things, um, Today people turn almost entirely over to, um, well, if I'm, if I'm miserable or I'm poor or I'm whatever it is, then a political candidate is going to help me out of that, um, and, and this can become very idolatrous. How is Jesus tempted to break the first two commandments? Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him a world kingdom without the pain of the cross. Instead, Jesus loved and worshiped God faithfully and perfectly all his life. He chose the will of his Father over the promises of the devil and accepted the cross. What a great Lenten answer. Um, you know, Satan's temptation is, if you will bow down and worship me, which, you know, thank God he didn't, right? I mean, <laughs> I, sort of, I sort of think, you know, when I read the, that, you want to just say, "Well, that's impossible." Uh, let's move on, and don't be so quick to do that. And I think it's well within Jesus' purview to to have done it. Um, it's a real temptation. Um, I think the world would have melted down, probably the entire universe. Uh, but but here it is. But what does he do? What's what's the temptation? The temptation is to have total power. Um, and to avoid the pain of the cross. Um, which is always a tempting thing, isn't it? Would you agree? I mean, this is, as Christians, this is the hardest thing we'll do. It's to say, I mean, one of the, one of the bases of Christianity is, simp- is simply this. It's take up your cross and follow me. It's to embrace suffering, to, emba- and to embrace pain, to embrace being maligned, to embrace uh, mortification in all its forms. Um, and follow Jesus um, and and to worship God for His own sake, um, and not because of what He might give me. Um, and this is really what sets apart the God of Israel from the idols. Um, the idols are always disappointing people because they always hold out this hope of like, well, you know if you do this ritual the right way, then you'll get uh, crop your crops will thrive. If you do this the right way, then you'll get this. If you do this the right way, then you'll get this, and everything will work, and it'll be great. Um, but, but faithfulness to the God of Israel always holds a certain manner of disappointment, always. Um, because um, at the end of the day, we're either going to be faithful to God on the merits or not. How will idolatry affect you? If I worship idols, I will become like them—empty and worthless, and alienated from God, the only One who can make me whole. The prophets are constantly making fun of idolatry. Um, one of my favorites—I think it's Isaiah—draws uh, attention to the idol, to the idol carver. Right? He he cuts down a tree, cuts it in half. He burns half as firewood, turns the other half into an idol. It's it's foolish. Um, and yet we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Um, we do things like, well, you know this part of my paycheck is for this, and this part of it is for me, <laughs> and it's you know i 'm doing all these noble things like paying my bills with one part, this other part is for me and for my pleasure. Um, we do it all the time, even with our families, we do this right we say We say things like um, Oh, thanks be to God for my family. They're so wonderful and so loving and so kind, and 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 I'm so thankful to have them. And yet, at the same time, we'll say, "But what have they done for me lately?" We do this with we do this with our churches. Um, I do it with you. It's it's horrible. It's this idea of like, well, uh, I really love our church, but there are certain things I don't really love. And w- could we change this? Could we change that? And, and part of me just has to confess that um, that my desire to, uh, to have anything other than what's been given to me um, can be very sinful. Um, part of what I need to be called to do is just, and what I need to be recalled to do, is to just, to just love what God's given um, and, and, and love it fully. How can you love God and worship? The Holy Scriptures teach me how to worship God, and the church's liturgy guides my worship in keeping with the Scriptures. I can show love to God by worshiping him in this way. Um, this sounds like a very simplistic answer. I guarantee you that it is not <laughs> because there, there are various times, uh, and I'll say this uh, clearly to you, where um, as one who's grown up with the liturgy as a constant in my life, I mean, I've never really very long worshiped outside of this setting. I mean, uh, there are uh, some of the ways that we sing things like the Gloria and the Kyrie, I've been singing these exact settings since I was little, um, since I was three years old. And I'll say that at times, it, 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 it sort of becomes old, and I think, well, I'm kind of bored with this. For many of you, you've come to this church, and you've, you've been sort of excited by it, and, you've, and you've, you're really very excited about it. Um, for others, you're still trying to figure it out. You're like, why, you know, I'm not quite sure about this. I don't quite get it. Um, you know, it doesn't just seem so depersonalized, and how can it be that this is that this could be anything but that? And I think th- what I want to do to all of you is just serve and encourage you this morning um, as we close, um, and 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 encourage you in one one really I think significant way, and that is that um, if you find yourself um, either. Uh, feeling very ill at ease within the liturgy, um, let it let it kind of let it kind of wash over you a little bit. Kind of, in a sense, submit to it a bit, and say, "Okay, I can do this for a while, right? I can just I can just do it, and I can throw myself into it for a while." If you find yourself Taking it all for granted and sort of losing it—that's the time that you really do need to double down on personal devotion, right? That's a sign you need to be getting in a little bit earlier and uh, and and praying before you come in and and getting getting that time to um, to enter into it well. Um, I think there there, as I've said before about a number of things, there are pitfalls on either side. Um, but but I will say this: I've had times in my life where. Uh, where life is so busy and so distracting, where I've got a million things going on, and where I'm so utterly spent, that to come in here on a Sunday morning and be genuinely tired, and to be genuinely worn out, and genuinely not feeling it, I will say that just, and, and is that is that to say that I should be, that that's okay, that I should be that way on Sundays? No, not at all. But say, there are Sundays where I come here and I'm not feeling it. But I always, always, always come away from the liturgy saying God was worshiped this morning despite my, my bad attitude, <laughs> and despite my not really feeling it, and despite my, uh, my, my distraction and all of that. Um, and very often, what will happen is this. I'll be standing in something like morning prayer and a and a phrase that I've heard a million times, I mean a million times, will enter through my ear and hit my heart in a way that I did not expect it, um, and I will be struck by it, and it will lead me uh, to my knees. Um, and that's really one of the powerful things about the liturgy is that um, because it doesn't come out of my own creativity. Um, it's a means of God speaking to his people patiently. Um, and so I want to encourage you in that direction. Um, if, if you feel alienated from liturgical worship at all, one of the things I want to challenge you to do is just sort of take it on. Maybe take it on as a Lenten discipline. Uh, and, and just take it on and, and throw yourself into it and, and ask God to show you something through it. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll leave you with one story. A friend of mine was uh, was had a had a guy in his church and, and this guy said, I, don't, I just don't get any of this. I don't understand it, it doesn't make sense. And this very wise priest, he said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your prayer book home with you uh, and look up Compline every night and pray just this simple Compline. It's a simple, you know, before you go to bed prayers. Do it for six weeks. So this guy, he dutifully went back and, Three weeks later, he said, still don't get it. This is just misery. <laughs> I don't, this is really hard, and I feel so bored. And and uh, three weeks later, he checked in, said, how's it going? Oh, he said, I love this. And he said, well, what changed for you? And he said, well, I, I realized something, that these prayers became my prayers, and they became his prayers because he realized that um, that he was... For the first time in his life approaching worship as a member of a living of the living body of Christ, with all of the gifts given to that one body um, becoming operative in his life um, and leading him to pray with the voice of the church. And that this was a radically new way of praying uh, but that it it, it it buoyed his spiritual life. because here's here's I think part of the modern malaise. part of the modern malaise is, You have to worship just so. If your heart's not in it, or your mind's not in it, or you float off, or you don't do it right, or you do this, or you do that, and your emotions are a wreck, or your, your, your affect is flat, or your whatever it is, then you didn't worship properly. So go back and do it again. Do you see how freeing the liturgy is about that? It says, no, 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 no. You don't have to get it right. I don't have to get it right. I make mistakes all the time when I'm praying the liturgy. Thanks be to God that it doesn't matter much. <laughs> and that we don't believe in magic, you know, that I don't have to say it all right. Um, but but I, I put myself in submission to you as the church, and I put myself in submission to God, and I say, this is what we're doing. And, uh, and there's power in it. There's absolute power in it. So I offer that to you as a way to say, if you're feeling like individually you're failing in prayer, Liturgical prayer is a wonderful release from all that, uh, from often what is the tyranny of my kind of individual needs taking over in prayer.